Hi, friends. It's Aislinn. And Joe. Welcome to season three at our dinner table. And nothing is off limits at our nope. dinner table. So settle in, mm. grab your favorite beverage. And pull up a chair. Because we have a lot to talk about. right now thank god they were giving examples to one another about how crappy the old house was while talking about how awesome that this house was oh yeah like what you've been crunching up my almonds <laughs> they're so tasty why would you eat an almond bar while we're recording like, really like you know that can't work I'm not going to eat it anymore. Okay, if you're going to do almond bar, I'm going to jingle some ice. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> they were saying, oh, look, the floor is where it's supposed to be. Look, the floor's not coming up and cutting our feet. <laughs> Shut up. I don't know where but this goes. But it was goes. full of love, and I still believe that. Oh, sure. I don't know where these go, because we asked them to, to unload the dishwasher. And we are in that stage where mm-hmm. we, where, right. where are the bowls? Right. Where are the plates? I've walked into the pantry to put garbage away because it felt right. But that's not where the garbage can is. No. I heard, did we get rid of too many coffee cups? That's funny. That's getting used to the new house. Yeah. I was getting frustrated yesterday about things that had kind of started to pile up. And then I had a big day to get ready for the farmer's market. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But as I came back home after that was all and put it, started putting it all back away, this house is designed... For me to put up, take down, farmer's market, farm stand, farm to table dinners, things have a home. They have a place where they can be put away now and are geared for the kind of work that I do. And it's so nice. We have had a jam-packed week. Your mom requested gluten-free pizzas. And we have not had a night where we're all in the same place since then. And I've said this before, like the moment September hits... I'm in the ground until July, and then I take off August. We need to tell (laughs) everybody about your new helpers, but first let's say hi. Hi, everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm glad you joined us at the dinner table tonight. Grab your beverage. We have. I I noticed that you passed along some of your work to your chickens. Yeah. I feel like we... I'm out there in the world talking about all of the things that are going on regularly, And the chicken tractor is a big deal. So I've taken a lot of pictures as this whole thing has developed because it's one of the things I've been saying as they've been developing the gardens out here. And then we had that nice backyard chicken coop with the runs and the Mm -hmm. tunnels and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it was very geared for... For an urban backyard chicken, it was was amazing. Exactly. Exceptional. Exactly. Sure. But it gave us some testing grounds to be able to... laboratory. Exactly. So when I get over here, my dad builds now a little chicken tractor. And this particular situation, I don't know what your experience with chickens is and whether you know a chicken tractor or not. Live vicariously through us if you don't have chickens. Just let us explain the joy of this. And if you live in a town that has backyard chickens available to you, we're going to convince you to get them. And if you live in a rural area, you already have them. Generally, you have female chickens, pullets that are your hens for laying. If you're going to have male chickens, you only need a few of those. So the rest of them become what's considered a broiler and become meat birds. And those farmers that grow local chicken, pasture-raised chicken, use a thing called a tractor. 
they move their broiler chickens mm-hmm. in this tractor for like eight weeks or something like that. It's not even... That's the amount of time it takes to get from yeah. chick to slaughter? Generally, mm-hmm. the ones that are being used to make broilers for me, whatever, that's how long they go. And they go in a chicken tractor. This is a chicken tractor, but it is a, an actual coop. It has a nesting box and places to roost. And the reason is because we take the chickens over there and they live in this coop with tunnels that go down garden rows and alongside edges of garden beds and things like that and help me clean up. And this is a very important part of, like you said, making it easier on me and taking some of the labor off of me because the way I grow, the permaculture style of growing that I do and the idea of just growing so much abundance of organic matter Mm. or carbon I have weeds, I have green, I have seeds, I have all kinds of things growing and multiplying out there. And that's not a bad thing because I keep my soil moist, I've got good soil, I'm putting a lot of carbon mulch on my soil. So my soil is alive and healthy and has a lot of moisture in it, but it can be a hassle for me to have to get in there and get it all cleaned up and spend all of the time doing all of that work. Well, with so many hours in a day... I would think you don't want to devote a huge chunk of that to weeding. Listen, I was out there in the garden today digging in the dirt and weeding, and I was thinking that I think I was put on this planet to weed. And I know that sounds crazy, but digging in the soil and just pulling out the plants and looking at the insects and pulling out the seeds and all that is really something special to me. It's something I do really well. So to me, the idea of weeding, you know, that like right. it doesn't, that really doesn't really exist. Yeah, However, I, guess I'm from the pers- I need to come at it from the efficiency angle of, okay, well, if I spend less time weeding footpaths, I can still weed the rows and the beds where I'm actually planting. Right. That's what I meant. Then I have time instead to Mm -hmm. seed. And so I can spend more time seeding. And seeding is very, is equally important because I'm trying to grow green. And last night at the farmer's market, I was talking to a farmer that was in a booth right next door to me. And I said to him, one of the best things you can do is plant more seeds, plant more cover cropping seeds, plant more flower seeds. I'm just going to say it over and over and over again. And the reason is because something's going to grow in those spaces. And you're going to have to deal with it. Either it's something that could be potentially productive or beneficial to the garden, or it's just an obnoxious weed that's overgrowing in a place that it shouldn't be, and it's not really in a place you want it to be. My goal is to get seeds put in that are the things that I want. So what the chickens are doing is going up and down the rows in these tunnels, and we're getting some more angles, build 90 degree Mm -hmm. angles, and they're pecking out all the seeds Good seeds and bad seeds. Some of the seeds they're pecking out are things that if they grew, I wouldn't be unhappy about it. But if they're in the footpath, I don't want them in the footpath. Exactly. So they're doing that. And then a lot of the things that we call weeds, especially when we're talking about out in more of the rural areas, are actually livestock food. They were purposefully planted Mm. in order to be a type of grass that will grow with high protein, all the things an animal needs, but the animal's not going to destroy it when it eats it. So the bunching grass, the type of grass that we grow out here, if it gets to the point of growing into a full-blown plant... You it's can't in, get it out. Yeah, I have to get in there with a saw uh-huh. and to get the roots out and I have to do it in the soil when the soil's wet and all of those types of things. So those are the kinds of seeds that I'd prefer to not have to deal with because I don't really have the time right. to do that. 
but yet I've got my chickens out there. They're cleaning that up. They're cleaning that damn Bermuda grass out, which is one of those livestock grasses that causes me, or, you know, mm-hmm. the bane of my gardening is Bermuda grass. So we did say a couple of weeks ago that we are up to 12 chickens. Mm-hmm. The six from our backyard flock, a rooster Nimrod that yep. we obtained. Yep. And then five more that a friend gave us. Five laying hens that a friend gave us. So mm-hmm. they live in the main run that you can see pictures of. And the big coop on our and social all media. That. Yep. So every few days you swap out the two. Yeah. So the way that it's been going lately They don't take is, a vacation. Yeah. We pick them up kind of in the evening. They're easy to catch. They're ready to go to bed. Exactly. So we grab up a couple of them. We put them in the coop. They go to bed in the coop. They wake up the next morning. They run up and down the tunnels that I've set out in the footpaths Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, digging up the soil and all the things I talked about and they're pretty happy and they're laying their eggs in the nest box. I go out in the evening to drop the door, make sure they're safe from predators overnight, Mm -hmm. grab two eggs, put them on the egg pile, which is growing now. Yep. And in a couple of days, we'll take those two chickens, put them back in the run, grab two new chickens and put them out there. And you showed me a video of how beautiful that soil is after they've been on it for a day or two. Yeah. This is working out. While they were over there doing that, I was over doing the exact same thing on my hands and knees in the garden today. (laughs) Right. And thinking about how much I loved it because I love weeding, you know, like. It's meditative for you, I imagine. It must be a chicken in another life or something like that. I don't know. Is it meditative? Yeah, it has to be. Has to be, I solve a lot of problems when I'm in the garden, for sure. But, you know, that's not the end of our flock. No. Because today was actually a really big day. For the podcast listeners that have been listening to this podcast since the beginning, you will know that this will be the third flock of chicks that Joe and I have gotten together. That's right. And so the chicks came in this morning. We got them in the mail. They were they shipped yesterday, and Patricia from the post office called me at like 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. This is Patricia from the U.S. Postal Service in Taft. And I said, hi, do you have my babies? And she goes, I do. And I said, I'm on my way. I went and picked up eight baby chicks, and I can already tell the like interesting ones. I can already see them. We have one of those ones that has the crested feathers on its head, uh-huh. like big so he's already got a little bit of an afro growing. I love it. I'm already calling him a he, even though it doesn't You're necessarily... You're manifesting a rooster. I'm manifesting a rooster, yeah. Because I ordered them in a way to try to get a couple of interesting roosters. Then we've got this other little tiny one. He's He or she, hopefully he, is real small and he has feathers on his legs. I don't know if you've ever held a baby chick, like a day old baby chick, because... Yeah, these chicks hatched yesterday, they stick them in a box and they send them to you. Yes. And when they're a day old, they're like furry little peepers. Right. They're furry, not like feathery. Not feathery. They're yeah. furry. But that changes really fast. Birds mm-hmm. are really ugly when they're babies. Like they come out and they're all like, oh, he's so cute. And then they're like pterodactyls they hit for that like weird gangly teenage phase <laughs> in about a week. Yeah. And then they're ugly for like two months. And then they finally start putting on their like adult feathers and they get all pretty again. Mm-hmm. But when they're babies, they're just like these little squeaky fur balls. They're so cute. Yeah, you put some great video up on our Facebook and Instagram today. You know when your kids are at the table in their high chair and they're like falling asleep? Mm -hmm. 
And it's like their heads like falling over yeah. or even in their car seat in the car mm-hmm. and they're like falling asleep. And they're like in the weirdest, like jacked up position, their heads like barely even connected to their body anymore. And then like referring to the whole mom side of it is the other thing that you do is that you're like, are they, are they okay? Mm-hmm. Are they awake? Especially it's for the first, the kid. first one yeah. and the first couple of nights you have them. Mm-hmm. And then after the first few nights, you're like, dude, I cannot keep waking them up every time they're asleep because now I can't sleep. Right. I never sleep. I never sleep anymore. I've got to sleep, you know? So you're like, okay, you're going to have to sleep and I might, you might die overnight, but hopefully you wake up tomorrow morning. I mean, that's the way I feel about the baby chicks. That's the way I felt about the dog. Remember how off the first night when the dog was in our place and I was like, oh my God, he's too quiet. And he was such a good dog. Like he, from the beginning was so good in the crate that he would just go in his crate and go to sleep. The dog that is curled up me. asleep on your lap right now? Yes, exactly. So the chicks are in a plastic box with a, there will be a lid on top. It's got a heat lamp to regulate the temperature around them for the first six weeks. We'll put them outside in about five or six weeks with the other chickens. We won't go into grave detail every single week, right? We're going to commit to that. <laughs> but it was a big day today. Getting new chickens, it's a big day. It's fun. It's fun. And it would be fun to have you guys help us name the chickens. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. We've got nine to name. Yeah. Eight new chicks and one that we haven't named yet. Exactly. An adult. So, yeah. So, we have nine chickens that need to be named. And maybe we'll take a little video of each individual chicken and, like, ask some questions. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm too much of a control freak to, like, completely give that up to the population. I have a hard time letting it go to the kids because we end up with chickens named Dodie that like we don't even know who Dodie is two weeks later. Um, (laughs) But it's okay because Dodie died like early. So like she was like. (laughs) Unanswered questions. Okay. So last week I had told you that I had made the Roselle hibiscus like Jamaican juice with the ginger and Mm -hmm. the whole allspice and all that pumpkin spice latte-ish juicy goodness with the roselle that I grow. And we served this really nice fancy luncheon. So of course we want it to be in like nice glassware and dishes and all of that. And my mom has this really beautiful carnival glass. So it was like pretty carnival glass and then a pretty carnival glass pitcher. And the color is like an amber color or brown color. So that's... The it was answer. the carnival that was the name of it? Yes, such a big deal. It's called Carna- Vintage Carnival Glass. You asked me to bang for. the gong. That's why we're here this week. What is the Ethiopian bread? Duh. It's injera. Injera. I think that was an unanswered question. And then we talked about the first Ethiopian food we ever ate Two together. Two ACLs ago. ACL's going on right now. I'm even going to work from memory and say it's season one, episode seven and eight, because that was the ACL episodes. Yeah. Then your mom made bulgogi beef, and I said, I knew this was a Korean dish, but I didn't know exactly how to make it. But bulgogi beef is one of those intro to ethnic cuisine dishes. If you go to any kind of Korean barbecue, on the menu is bulgogi beef. The same way that lumpia might be an introduction to Filipino food, or sog paneer is an introduction to Indian food, or California rolls is an introduction to sushi. Bulgogi is that for Korean food. Bulgogi is thin strips of meat typically soaked for a very long time in a marinade made of soy sauce, brown sugar, ginger, green onion, sesame seeds, Asian pears, Mm, pulls a sweetness in, onion, garlic, mirin, which is like sake but less alcohol and more sweet, and oil. And that's the spice profile of 
bulgogi. Then you cook the beef. You can serve it in, gosh, tacos over rice. They, can, they serve bulgogi in so many different ways. But someday on the show, we'll do bulgogi from scratch. Okay. Then finally, last week when we were talking about the crab and shrimp boil with my brother, mm-hmm. we didn't know for sure why, what was the butter. Like he, I had said he used butter and that was the thing he was talking about. Put it inside the boil, yeah. What he said was he puts it in after he does the potatoes and corn. And that butter. basically he just did a little, he was looking at how to get it to peel the easiest. Okay. And he did some research on the butter and salt helps to make the peel come off. And I like you mentioned last week, the heads are still on. So like nice prawn-sized shrimp with the head on, you know, and then throwing this butter in at the end. That it, Just the flavor of the shrimp was some really fantastic stuff. And that's why he uses butter in a crab boil. Exactly. One year ago today. Time What are we doing here? One year ago today's episode, it's the last... Friends with benefits that we've done mm. a year ago, Aislin. So we do about one to two a year. Last year, the first year two, the second year one. We're doing it. We're now it was a very special friends with benefits because we had on the show some of our very best friends that own our favorite restaurant, Corpus Christi. Uh, yeah, we had Susan and Francesco and Guajato from Bellinos. That was a great time, and of course, the food is always excellent there. And they're certainly one of our favorites. And when you we, listen to this episode, and I you have don't a have thing anything. about favorites, you know, like you're like you're one of those guys yeah, that will right. say like, "Go ahead." What are my number one three favorite movies? And I'm like, I don't know. Like it depends on which genre we're talking about, and it depends gonna... on which day I'm on. You know, like I'm so I, glad you said that because you set us up for something later. Like several times, I'm you say our favorite <sighs> Thai restaurant, our favorite restaurant in town, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't know about favorite, but it ease, is a I can favorite. Ease back on favorite, a favorite, closest friends that own a restaurant in Some town. Some really good friends of ours that own a restaurant that we kind of like. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Got it. <laughs> It's a roadmap, man. It's time to really talk about getting us a friends with benefits. I don't know, either ASAP or we're just more casual with it. Or maybe we change it up because now we've got a place where we actually could host some people here to have, we could be the friends with benefits. benefits Our listeners know that just know. because we talk about it on the podcast doesn't mean it's ever going to happen. I mean, we, we talked about getting married on the podcast. That's a good point. And we talked about how the first episode of this season would include a Patreon episode afterwards. And there's a recipe book floating around out there somewhere That's too. yours. I'm going to keep that for you. But getting back to friends with benefits, we both love I was going to do a chocolate, cha- chocolate cake challenge too. Maybe we don't bring up the failures no. over and over and over. No, again. maybe we maybe no, maybe we stop saying we're going to do a lot of things and we just do what we friends do. Friends with benefits roadmap. Are we doing friends with benefits moving forward? I want Soon. to. Let's do it. Let's do it. Friends with benefits, we should do. Okay, let's get it done. Who's going to be it? So I'm talking to the I friends at dinner table. Did. Fantastic idea. Friends with benefits, where are you? Benefit me. <laughs> What have we learned about curry so far? What I think we've learned about curry is that you're not, you're either not adventuring in your curry profiles enough or you're not specifying the flavors enough. I'm bored. Can we do something besides curry? (laughs) 
That's how I feel about it. So far for the curry challenge, we did the Penang curry, which was so good, you asked me to make it for a sellable ticket. And the second sellable one was fantastic. It was really good. Then we made curry chicken wings, which weren't that great. Then we did, this week, a yellow curry. Now, why did we move that direction? Plus, last week, we had some curry from a local restaurant. From an Indian restaurant that you didn't even, like, register with. (laughs) But we are clearly at a crossroads. This week I made a yellow curry. Now, why did I make a yellow curry? Because it's your daughter's favorite curry, and it's a curry that we're familiar with. The Penang was your favorite curry from a restaurant that's one of our favorites, Thai food. I'll tell you one difference already that I can tell between what you're doing and what places other places are doing, Thai restaurants and stuff like that. I like the vegetables. I like the big chunks of bell pepper and the big chunks of onion and, and that's carrots. that's missing and, for you, you're saying. Yeah, it's mostly because you're cooking it at home. I usually eat tofu and not chicken. And so I think that I'm running into an issue where I'm not as in love with just a very basic meat and potatoes curry. Because that's not what a vegetarian gets at a curry restaurant. Uh, okay, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole. Of course you're not getting vegetarian food at our home because this is where you get the clean meat that you want. Well, what I'm saying is the curry is not as good. The no, curry challenge it's so not far. as good. And the first gluten-free pizza I made wasn't as good as the last gluten-free pizza that I made. I want to change the name of it from a challenge. I don't know. Challenge puts a weird vibe into it. For me, this really is a curry journey. Okay. What we have experienced up until this point that I have made are all Thai curries. Yes. In the Thai curry family, there's going to be coconut milk and typically a curry paste. Mm-hmm. And I've exhausted what I want to do with the Thai family, having tried the, the two that we did. Mm-hmm. I do like your note about the thick, chunkier pieces of bell pepper and onion. I'll definitely go that direction. I mean, theirs are so fresh that they're not even like cooked down. Those big, bright vegetables are just barely thrown in at the last minute and just warmed, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. right. But the best part of this kind of journey, if you will, is that we can abort at any moment. If you're bored with it, we don't have to continue. No, I just think that the challenge with our move is that you're not really cooking that often and you're wanting to get the one meal that you want to cook for the podcast done. So we're eating curry once a week. This is too much. I've had too much curry. Where I intended on going was to step away from the Thai curry, the paste, and the coconut milk. Mm -hmm. The paste, though, was so interesting to buy at the Asian market and find. And I guess it's just like I like to learn. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that Penang curry, and I really thought that the yellow curry was pretty excellent. But no, you're right. It's not like a different type of curry. It's it's different than the restaurants that we enjoy. Like a goat curry is not a sweet you're not gonna thai find that curry at a, yeah you're not it's gonna a find spicy that in a thai place. curry so i think that yeah i, I was mean, trying I think, to manage the journey let's try here and then let's go here and then let's go here you were trying that's that's the problem you were trying to manage the journey well, of course because i've got in i mean i'm not gonna just leapfrog all over the world before i'm familiar with exact like the like the foundational building blocks of the whole thing is that the foundational building block? I think Thai you have food to start, is the foundational. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that like I want to get this right before I move on to something else. Otherwise, I'm just shooting darts all over a board. I think the problem that I'm having with it is that it's not special. It's just 
sugary food. Yeah, that's why I'm calling it a journey. There's got to be an evolution, especially for someone that's never made curry before. Oh, sure. You have a learning curve. And I imagine that a curry, particularly if you ask people about making curries, it's kind of like stew or roast or other things that kind of take time to learn how to really get a good cook on with something. Rather than the Penang curry paste, I used a yellow curry paste. The Penang has a peanut element to it. So remember it had peanut butter in it? Uh This, of course, did not. It was the chicken cooked in the sauce as the sauce was coming together. And I like that element to it because I think it more flavors up the meat. But after your onion and your chicken and the potatoes and, of course, the tromboncino, we used another one of those because Mm -hmm. that's the official mascot of Dinner Devil Talk, (laughs) vegetable-wise. The yellow curry paste, ginger, garlic, coconut milk. I mean, there is the the entire thing. Cornstarch to thicken it up. And then the last five minutes, but of course it was longer than five minutes because I was letting it melange before I served it. You throw in your fish sauce, brown sugar, serve it over rice, and there's your yellow curry. So the curry. curry, the yellow curry is where the spice is at in the paste? Spice heat? Yes. Yes. Okay. Just like with the... Panang curry, mm-hmm. and the next time you made the panang curry, you added a lot more curry paste to it. Right. You need to do that again with the yellow curry. With the yellow curry, too. Yes. I was having to use a different paste. The, the paste that I purchased the first time comes in like little tuna fish cans, imagine, mm-hmm. and there's 50 of them. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of flavors. And they had a sour yellow curry paste. And I went up to the cashier, and I asked, is there a difference between this sour yellow curry paste Mm -hmm. and yellow curry paste. Mm -hmm. She says, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm not finding yellow curry paste. Mm -hmm. She says, oh, we're out of that brand. Look underneath. So I had to get a tub (laughs) of yellow curry paste that's, you know, two pounds, three ounces. And I just want to read the ingredients because where I could go is make my own paste, which I think I should do before this journey is over, Uh rather than just rely on store-bought. Garlic, lemongrass, salt, shallot, galangal. Uh-huh. Galangal is like a ginger or a turmeric. It's yeah. um, a root-based root. spice, mm-hmm. but it's got more of a um, bolder, spicier flavor mm-hmm. than ginger. Dried red chili, coriander seed, kefir lime peel, curry powder, cumin, cinnamon, turmeric, cardamom, nutmeg. That's what's in this paste. Mm-hmm. Thai curry, I've learned, is three major pastes, red, green, yellow uh-huh. it's all about the different colored peppers that they're using uh-huh. that's what the color is so yeah i've got to make some more yellow curry because i've got two pounds three ounces of the stuff cool we'll make it with some fried tofu and more bell peppers and add extra curry paste i think that i'm really picky about curry because i have eaten a lot of it in 20 years of being basically a vegetarian at restaurants you get to eat a lot of curry To your point about making yellow curry again and using more paste, I think I will probably do that. I think I'm going to wait a few weeks. Then where we go from there, no, not all curries have coconut milk. That's the Thai family. So moving into maybe Indian, where I'm thinking is I've got two packages of goat chops in the freezer Uh that I bought because, oh my God, goat chops. Yes. And now, how do I use goat? That's more like a masala. It's more of a brown curry. Well, well, the research has shown me that while Thai uses that technique that we talked about, Indian is frying in ghee or Uh oil dry spices and then adding to it the elements that create the gravy, the curry. Yeah. And that's where I think I'd like to go using that goat. 
That sounds great. Which, by the way, we should definitely learn how to cook goat because I'm going to buy a goat from the neighbor so that we can eat it. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> and speaking of the tromboncino, that is minimally the fall mascot of Dinner Table Talks. <laughs> this year, certainly. I went to the farmer's market this week. Now, you mentioned this a week or two ago. Uh-huh. I'm headed to the farmer's market to sell some vegetables. Uh-huh. And I was really, really, really excited for you. Yeah, it was Because a you big and deal. I have been farmer's marketing mm-hmm. since the beginning of our relationship. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, in 2012, I was living here on the farm, producing some vegetables, trying to start my own farm business. And then I discovered that there was a lot of missing pieces. <laughs> to how you can actually sell it. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be something that was going to flow easily. So I ended up, so we, I ended up starting a farmer's market in order to, and I showed up at the farmer's market and I spent about two weeks selling my produce at the farmer's market. And I learned very quickly there was a lot more work that was going to have to be done. And a lot of demand for that kind of activity in the downtown area, certainly. So yesterday felt like a full circle for me (laughs) in that I was able to get back to what I started it all for. Selling your stuff. Yeah. And of (laughs) of course it all, it does all come back to the heart centered part of it, which is affordable access for people because that's who I am. And for me, inspiring people to grow their own food is about affordable access. But at the same time, if I'm growing an overflow of abundance, but I mean, I still had so much to learn. The city of Corpus Christi still had so much to learn. There were so many more ships that needed to turn, seeds that needed to be planted. Really, you know, a decade later, I'm at the farmer's market, farm stand, family and friends all there to help me set it up and get it going. And I've got a ridiculous amount of tromboncinos and watermelons, which I'm getting texts from people and photographs and tags on Instagram that these watermelon are delicious. And I've been selling the tromboncino everywhere I go on the, on the podcast. We're talking about tromboncinos and at dinner parties and all, I mean, Sunday morning lives. Yeah. So I've got people buying tromboncinos and then I don't even know how to go through the experience of all of the different things that happened yesterday, but I feel like I was out in a field and all of a sudden the lightning bugs all around me came back on again. Everywhere, all these little lightning bugs of people that were like, you're here and I'm so glad to have connected with you. And, oh my God, I have a million questions for you. And, oh my God, what is she growing now? And what does she put in her smoothies? And, you know, that is my crowd, you know, of people and and that's my vibe. But you know what I think the best part about it is, is that I'm showing up at a farmer's market that I built, but I am no longer in charge Mm -hmm. of the group of master gardeners that are coming through to do their annual visit to the farmer's market. And the vendor customer that's unhappy about the space that they're in. Some of the people there have no clue who I even am, you know? But the best part about it to me is is that that I don't have to go back next week. Like, I'm only there when I feel like it. Oh, so you're not going every Wednesday. No, I don't have... I have plenty of places to sell my produce. I'm not a farmer's market vendor. I'm a traveling farm stand. And when I go set up a farm stand at a school event or a monthly farmer's market or the downtown farmer's market or cannoli farms or a community garden event or whatever, I show up to sell the overflow of abundance and to teach people how to garden and to talk about the different plants that people should be buying or the seeds they should be planting. And people show up for that kind of stuff. Anyway, okay, so here was a perfect example of perspective. 
the vendor next to me was Andrew Edelin. Oh, yeah, I've talked, talked about, about Andrew. Yeah, He's Andrew. a listener yeah. of the podcast. He had carrots when you didn't have carrots. That's right. Mm-hmm. I would go to Andrew to get my carrots. Yep, that's right. And he said, as he was kind of setting up and I was getting all set up, he goes, um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe I should be a little intimidated being right next to Aislinn, you know? And I was like, oh, come on. And the, here I am. I'm trying to give some perspective to this whole scene. Andrew, imagine being the person that started the farmer's market 10 years ago, showing up for the first time to be a farmer at the farmer's market. Every single person that has any remote concept of what's going on is watching me right now. Every vendor that I've worked with in the past, every farmer, every new farmer, every everybody's watching me. In fact, even if I wasn't Aislinn Campbell, I know how the farmer's market works. There's a new farmer on the scene everybody's watching sure. to see what that farmer's oh, yeah. showing up I mean, with. Even as a customer and your partner that knew more about it than maybe most people there. Yeah. Through osmosis. A new vendor shows up as a customer. It's what do they have that no one else has? Mm-hmm. How nice is their, their booth and presentation? Because that's an indication of the cleanliness of their farm. I mean, then that could just be bullshit in my head. But yeah. that's how I felt as a customer. Right. What value are they adding to my shopping experience as one of the people in this city that comes here to shop every week? Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that yesterday with you. Mm-hmm. That judgment was going yes. on with the regulars. Yeah, everybody. And it's an interesting thing because for 10 years, I was the ringmaster, mm-hmm. putting out all the fires and directing and telling people where to go. And not all the years because I was smart enough to hire somebody to do a lot of that stuff so that I could do other things there. But anybody that knows anything about Grow Local knows I was the ringmaster in all the rings because <laughs> like, that's my personality, you know, and I'm glad to not have to be there. I was glad to be able to say to a vendor in the booth next to me that sells microgreens, oh, I'm so glad you have microgreens. I'm going to buy some. And then for us to have conversations about, well, do you know about this type of growing and Have you ever tried this and me to outright say, you know what? I focus on soil and mycelium and pasture-raised chickens and honey bees and flowers. I stay in my lane. And I think that that's an important part of the local food scene or any of the coaching scenes or any of that. And that is there's an audience for you and we need all of you and we can't all do it all. So you know, do the things that you do best. If your land, yes, be adventurous and try all the different things. And this is me talking to like every farmer vendor type of person, because this is what I did for a decade was teach people how to be good farmer's market vendors. Here I am showing up to be a farmer's market vendor and going, yeah, but I don't have what you have, Jaime. And I don't have what you have, McNabb Farm with the microgreens, which by the way, I put their amazing sweet pea microgreens in my smoothie today Mm -hmm. because I don't grow microgreens. And Jaime has the best bell peppers always. He has fantastic bell peppers. My bell peppers didn't even sell compared to his. So his bell peppers were whipping my bell peppers butt. Mm -hmm. But I had onions because I know, I know how to grow onions. I grow onions real good, you know, or whatever. That was this year. Maybe next year I won't have the best onions in town. I had a very unique booth and I had things set up to where I tried to like give little informational pieces to things. I mean, really what I've been teaching people how to do for a decade, how to be the best farmer's market vendor. I had unique things that other farmers didn't have. 
I had labels on things and people there to help explain, well, how do you cook that? What do you do with that? Pumpkins in October at the farmer's market. I did that, y'all. They all sold out, I think. They did. I sold all my pumpkins. I sold all my watermelons. I sold a big portion of my tromboncino squash. And then I think that the rest of my tromboncino squash is actually going to Grow Local's biggest fundraiser of the year, which comes up on October the 24th, the Grow Local Farm to Table fundraiser dinner that I helped create years ago. They're going to serve my tromboncinos and some of my stuff. It feels life-changing. It feels like when I've said in the past, oh, look, I manifested this. Oh, look, I manifested that. I had no idea that the full imagination of the manifestation was coming, which makes me think, oh my God, what's next? (laughs) But then also not what's next. You know what I mean? Like It's weird because, I mean, I was there at the beginning. I want to sell this food, but there's no great place to sell it. Mm-hmm. People don't even understand. Why I mean, don't even... you create it? Yeah. Okay. Then it's a derailment. Mm-hmm. And now here you back are on track. I don't. I, I, know. I really don't believe it's a derailment. I, I know. I it know. wouldn't have gotten here if that I hadn't understand. happened. I understand. It was a necessary I mean, detour, and now here you back are. Yes, I'd been growing for ten years mm-hmm. when that all occurred, but now I've been growing for ten more years since that. Yeah. And I've been. Not only teaching what I knew, amassing knowledge, but learning more and being sent off, not every time, but a lot of times to conferences, farming conferences to learn how to farm so that I could teach other people how to do it. Guess what? When it was time for me to do it, I took all that knowledge with me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the whole time I was rowing that nonprofit. And the point that I'm at in life now where I begin to understand a better understanding of both self and community at the same time, you can be both things at the same time. You can focus on self-care and also care about your community. I think I understand that that's exactly what I did with Grow Local, but I didn't exactly understand that that's exactly what I was doing back then. How does this create or grow me as a leader, as a better person, while I'm also giving everything I can while I'm making very, very little money and learning what I can alongside it. I didn't, I haven't been to the farmer's market. I don't go to the farmer's market to shop, you know, shoot. The last time I went to the farmer's market was probably in March when they were celebrating their ninth birthday and they invited me to come as the founder to just say, congratulations or whatever. And that being said, things that have happened, the way the Grow Local separation happened with, you know, massive logo changes and the splitting off of the learning garden and all of those little things, that isn't me anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the Grow Local that was existed when I was there did what it needed to do. Now Grow Local has taken all of those pieces and has stepped into the next chapter of what Grow Local is about to do or is supposed to do. And I can go in there, not anonymously, but certainly not the executive director of the nonprofit that's trying to spin all these plates and keep them all safely spinning. I I definitely had thoughts of the anxiety that could come on a Wednesday morning headed to the farmer's market because Wednesday mornings caused me some anxiety. (laughs) Back in the day. Oh, yeah, for sure. I ran a farmer's market, but I really was never a fan of running a farmer's market. I loved that I ran a farmer's market. I loved that I started a farmer's market. I loved that I understood how a farmer's market worked. 
and I could teach people how to get better at it, but I didn't love running a farmer's market. It wasn't the funnest part of my life. Have we been here a month? Yes, exactly. A full moon change. Settling into your... Did you see the moon moonrise out the kitchen window tonight? I haven't seen it and yet. Crescent moon. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous Yesterday was the new moon. You're settling into a bit of a routine. It's a seasonal routine. It'll change mm-hmm. as the weather changes. It'll mm-hmm. change because we get 10 inches of rain in a week. It'll change when you get nine new chickens knocking on the door. But you're settling into your routine. Are you finding that this is work? I know that you are. Mm-hmm. But peace at the same time? I'm finding my groove. I need everything to be in its place. And I need us to be actively putting things where they go before and after events. And I worked diligently yesterday after I got my stuff all put together. Mm -hmm. I've begun using a bullet journal type of journaling listing and it's really working well for me. Yeah. But I worked kind of like I did with the move. I gave myself enough time and preparation to have a lot of the work done so that I could get the work wrapped up and done at the right time in order to clean up everything, Mm -hmm. put everything away, drink my smoothie, take my supplements, calm myself down before I got in the car to drive to the farmer's market, and then put on the show of selling at a farmer's market, the first farmer's market where Aislinn Campbell, the founder of the farmer's market, has showed up to sell produce, right? So my handling my anxiety by creating the list and doing all that. And then today, having this day where there wasn't a lot of stuff to do on -hmm. top of that, gave me the ability to go back, put the things away, get them in their spaces, get them in it. Yes. Create order again. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And to keep this house flowing like it is. And nine chickens walked in. Well, and you know what? I said that that this morning. There's a great morning, place for them and everything was set up for them to be dropped. And yeah. I was glad that I it like happened it. exactly the way it happened yeah. because I could keep an eye on those chicks all day while I was getting all my other chores done and getting the house put back together and then, you know, doing my daily chores in the garden room with the chickens and watering plants and all of those things. So it's a busy life and I am finding a lot of peace in it. Well, it sounds like the answer to my question is yes, ultimately. Yeah, we have a lot going on. Recording a podcast at 9 o'clock, I yawn. So Then I'll move us forward. Yeah. Well, hey, while we're in this intellectual vibe, why don't you kick over a question that we can deep dive into? Last week, I asked you what the scariest movie you ever saw was. It was one of a series of movie questions. And I'm inclined to do this series with you okay. in Random Question of the Week. You good with this? Yeah. This is the first in the series. We'll skip the scary one when we come to it. This is an easy one. What's the first movie you ever saw in the theater? I don't know the answer to that question. You asked me that question the other day. I think it might have been Land Before Time, but I can't remember for sure. But that's the first movie I feel like I remember seeing at the movie theater. Mine was The Rescuers. Mm -hmm. We have that in common. Some adult, probably our parents, took us to a kid's movie when we were old enough to do I went it. with my mom and my brother. Me and my mom and my brother went to the movies all the time when I was a kid. How old was your brother then when... He might have been... He was little. And how, how many years older than you are you than your brother? Five years older. So he was probably five and I was, yeah. you know... Mine was The Rescuers. And I have no emotional attachment to that movie whatsoever. I don't even know if I've seen it again. And it came out in 77. I was five. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have another fleeting memory. My parents took me to go see Bloodline. Sidney Sheldon's Bloodline came out in 1979, so that meant that I was seven years old. 
and in it was nudity. <laughs> I remember this very, very vividly, and all of a sudden, my dad's big hand came around my head and over my eyes. <laughs> it had nothing to do with kid stuff at all. That was like lack of a babysitter. My parents loved to tell the story about how they used to take me to the drive-in movie theater, and at age three, I saw Porky's. Wow. They loved to talk about how I would stick my head up, and they would push my head back down <laughs> in the back seat like I wasn't allowed to come. I was supposed to be laying down in the back seat sleeping while they were watching the drive-in movie. They were pushing my head down, kind of like your dad's hands were going over your eyes. <laughs> I don't think I ever did that. I wish we had drive-in movie theaters because that... Uh, that, They made a big comeback in cities north of ours, but we haven't tried to do that here again. And then I think about the pterodactyl-sized mosquitoes outside, and then I think, yeah, those drive-ins were probably just a fantasy, and they weren't as great as we Yeah, I don't want to have to put on off before I go to the movie. (laughs) Maybe we don't bring up the failures over and over and over. No. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Dinner Table Talks. We will be back next Monday with a fresh episode. In the meantime, hit us up on social media, send us an email, DM us, whatever. We want to hear from you. And we hope that you're enjoying the episodes as much as we enjoy creating them for you.